you'll hear in the widow world, probably other worlds too, like, you have to go through it. You can't go around it. You <laughs> always have to go through it. So learning to go through those hard moments and and having having the faith that they're going to end, like they won't be forever, like you can wake up tomorrow and it will be gone, is really nice. I think I got myself through that by just saying every tear that I, I shed was a tear that I never had to shed again. Like mm. somehow that got me through a little bit. Like I was just like, oh, good, done, done with that one. Okay, bring on, like, let's get through the rest of them so I can be done with them all together. You know, there's that sense that I was going through not going around. Welcome to And Then Everything Changed, a podcast about the pivotal moments in life and the decisions that define us. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today I'm speaking with Abigail Carter, the author of the novel Remember the Moon and the memoir The Alchemy of Loss. Welcome, Abigail. Thank you. I'm really glad you could be here today. And um, for listeners who might not know about your memoir, can you tell me a little bit about what the subject is? Well, I wrote my memoir. Uh, I started writing my memoir about two years after my husband died in the World Trade Center. Um, I came at it as an auto writer. <laughs> it just sort of turned into this thing that I had to do. I guess it was a way of kind of dealing with my loss. Um so it really covers about a four-year period after my husband's death. Um, and at the time, I had two kids, so they were two and six. And so it covers, you know, a four-year period of their lives as well. And it was just sort of me messily making my way through um, and trying to figure it out. And I guess sort of the, you know, if you want to give it a, a you know, the moral of the story was uh, what I discovered was that as horrible as grief was, there was this silver lining, which I hadn't expected, um, which was that life kind of took on a whole new meaning and became actually deeper as a result of my experience. So, And had you written not a word of anything creative prior to this? Is that what you're saying? Well, um, it was funny. After my book was published, my mother actually sent me a folder of stuff that I'd written when I was a kid, you know, little poems and little stories that I'd written about mice and, you know, all kinds of little funny things like that. And on, on the on the folder, she had written a little stick it note saying, you know, see, you were always a writer. <laughs> um, but no, other than that, I really didn't. I, I wrote I wrote functional specs because I was a web project manager. So. so you had never really invested in that in your adult life in writing prior to that? No, not at all. So uh, when you started writing after 9-11, how long after the loss of your husband did you find that you started to tap out words about it? Well, I spent a long time trying to figure out, like, I just felt like writing for some reason. It had to be writing. I don't know why I felt that way. Well, it wasn't entirely writing because I was also at the same time building a bird bath as a memorial to my husband. Um, oh, can, can you talk about that too? <laughs> yeah, this, the two sort of wound up kind of happening at the same time. Um, well, I guess it was, uh, it sort of started... Um, because I was going to all these memorial services, public memorial services for 9-11. 
And I would always come back from them feeling really angry. And I couldn't really figure out why I was feeling so angry all the time. Mm. And I came back after the first anniversary where we literally went down into the pit. It was the first year that they were doing the names. Um, some guy got up. I didn't, I didn't want to read names, but some guy got up and read my husband's name as, and, and mis, misspoke his name, um, which was really bizarre. And so that made, made me really mad. And then, mm -hmm. and then it was just sort of this like media circus, you know, like entire families with a t-shirt of their loved one on it, or, you know, moms posing their kids in red, white, blue banner, you know, uh, head, head banners, like, you know, to pose them in front of the TV cameras. And I was just really horrified by it all. What was the, what was that feeling about, do you think? Um, well, I think the conclusion I finally drew was just that this memorial had nothing to do with my husband. It was a public memorial. And so what happened was that I wound up going, oh, of course, like I don't have, I never got a body, so I never had a grave. I never had ashes to sprinkle on a lake somewhere. So that's when I was like, oh, I've got to make my own memorial. And so he used to call me Lemon Bird and we would sit in the back garden and he'd say things like, hey, bird, what are those birds saying? You're a bird. <laughs> you know, I have to come up with some like witty repartee between birds. Um, and so uh, I decided that a bird bath would be appropriate. <laughs> so he also really was into mosaic tiles. And so I decided mosaic tile bird bath. So that was what kind of started the whole, you know, tiling of bird bath thing. And then um, I kind of at the same time was starting to like uh, feel like I was starting to forget a little bit things that had happened early on. And so I was trying to kind of just write those things down so that I would I would remember them because I was really worried that, you know, in 20 years, my kids would start asking questions about what had happened and I'd have no memory. And so I was starting to sort of just write this account a little bit. And then um, and then the kind of two came together because uh, I met with this woman, I think it was through a, a an organization, a 9-11 organization. They did a little writing class. And so I met the teacher and she kind of suggested that if I ever, you know, like had anything I wanted to write, that she would be happy to help me. And so after I finished the bird bath, I wrote a whole little, I don't know, if somebody told me it was an essay, I would have panicked. But I wrote a thing <laughs> about the bird bath and I sent it to her just to kind of get her opinion. And she loved it. And she had a couple of connections with magazines in New York. And at the time, we were living in New Jersey. Um, so she sent it off to the magazine, and Self Magazine picked it up. Wow. And then they came to the house, and they had clothes for me, and hair, and makeup, and kids' clothes, and <laughs> did a whole photo shoot. And I was like, wow, this this writing thing's a good deal. <laughs> well, what was that like to have the subject of your now-called essay, newly, right. newly fashioned essay, You've made it as a new writer, I guess, but the subject is your pain and loss. Uh, yeah. What was that dissonance like? Well, you know, I, I guess I didn't I didn't really see it that way just because I, I felt like the article was hopeful. Um, so I didn't really see it as my pain and loss exactly, although I guess it was if you really <laughs> dig deeper. To me, it was a triumph. You know, it was like I did this thing and I, I had this problem and I solved this problem and I 
I made a bird bath and, um, (laughs) (laughs) um, you know, and I had this party and filled the bird bath with champagne and gave everybody silly straws, you know? Um, so for me, it was a huge triumph. It was just like this huge weight off. You know, I finally had this memorial for my husband. The way Uh, you wanted it. The way I wanted it on my, on our terms, you know? Um, and I didn't ever have to go to another public memorial again, which was huge. Had you felt like you needed to go to those? I guess I did. Yeah. I felt like, uh, I had this really strong urge that I had to honor my husband somehow that, that those were the words that just kept like ringing in my head over, had to honor him. Like somehow I had to make sense out of this thing that was so senseless. Mm -hmm. And that was the only way you know it was just sort of these weird ways that were coming out build a bird bath and then because I had a bit of success with the article um I sort of it kind of prompted me to keep writing um the you know this sort of narrative I don't even know what it was a narrative I guess another thing another thing (laughs) and then at around the same time I was planning this move from New Jersey to Seattle and so I moved to Seattle and a friend of mine suggested I take a memoir class at the University of Washington. And it was just like a, you know, ex- extended education, one evening a week kind of thing. And so I kind of learned to write, you know, like I learned basic things like, oh, you're supposed to double space. <laughs> you know, like I didn't even know those rules. Um, and uh, and then I was also able to sort of read other people's work and they they were reading mine. And so I was starting to get more feedback on what I'd been writing and and people really kind of seemed to respond to it, which, you know, again, sort of surprised me um, because I just didn't consider myself a writer. And then I got through the class and I had this sort of body of work. It was a pretty big mishmash of stuff. And and then it was the fifth anniversary of 9-11. And because I'm Canadian, uh, the Canadian media kind of had my number, <laughs> literally my phone number. Um, and so they got in touch with me and <clears throat> um, asked if they could do an interview for the fifth anniversary. And I was like, eh, eh, you know, like I really didn't want to. But the woman kept saying, it can be whatever you want. It's just about you. And so I thought, you know, I have this opportunity to kind of spin a more positive story about widowhood and what it's like to be a widow. Do you know what you were afraid of it becoming if you didn't have that kind of control? Well, uh, the reason I was so kind of reticent about it was just because uh, they had done an interview um, for the first year anniversary and they had interviewed all of the Canadian uh, you know, survivor families. And five of us, I guess, had kids. And there were some of the some of the people had kids that were, I don't know, they just they kind of seemed to always be exploiting the media a little bit. And I just didn't want to kind of be I didn't want to be sort of put into that camp, you know, with like that's like that view of 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 what it was like Mm -hmm. to be this widowed person. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I didn't, I really just didn't want to be kind of in that cohort. Exactly. So when she said it could just be whatever I wanted and I had control, then it was a little more appealing to me because I felt like then I can control the narrative and spin it in a more positive way. Um, So I did the interview 
And then, um, you know, I'm from Toronto. My mother was actually a book designer and worked for a publishing company in Toronto. And so this woman that she had worked for, worked with, I guess, she was an editor. My mom was the book designer, had gone off in the ensuing, <laughs> whatever it was, 30 years, um, and become a literary agent. And she happened to see it. My mother was actually part of the interview because she was visiting me at the time. And so she saw the interview, recognized my mother, got in touch with my mother. Two weeks later, I had a book proposal. Two weeks after that, I had a book deal with the exact same company that they had both, her and my mother had both worked for, you know, wow. 30 years before. So it was really very sort of serendipitous the way it all kind of came to be. And it was all just because she'd seen me reading some of my writing on this interview. So it was all, you know, it was kind of like... So this happened, I mean, to you quite a while ago now, and it's it has been sort of an identity for you. I mean, you yeah. came into your writing, would you say, because of this, mm -hmm. right? Um, are you comfortable sharing the circumstances of that day at all? Sure. Yeah. Um, so uh, I guess it sort of started as a normal day. Um, my husband, you know, usually left the house around six o'clock in the morning. And he'd gotten up. It was sort of unusual in that uh, I usually didn't pay attention to him leaving the house. Um, but he had left and then came back. And I was like, what are you what are you doing? And he said, how could you, you know, how could you let me leave the house wearing this? You know, <laughs> I don't know. What, I can't. It was like he'd worn a blue blazer and gray flannel pants or something. Or no, I don't know what it was, but I can't remember now the exact details. But and and I said, oh, serious fashion faux pas. And so he changed his pants. I don't know if he wanted it all. No, because I remember it was like, I think he was in an all blue suit and then he changed into a gray flannel pants. I don't know. And then he actually allowed me, which he never did. He hated my taste in ties, but he actually allowed me to choose his tie, which was really bizarre. And then we we actually had this moment where, you know, he was walking away and I held his hand as if I wasn't going to let him go. And, you know, he sort of tugged away. He's like, I got to go, you know, and so off mm -hmm. he went. And that played over and over and over in my head later. Um, so then, you know, it was a normal morning getting the kids ready for school. You know, my son on my hip, my daughter, like, you know, we're scrambling to try and make this bus. It's her second day of kindergarten. And, um, and he calls me. And, you know, and I'm kind of like, my you know I'm like yeah 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 hi what what mm -hmm. what he's like ab ab he's like I'm at I'm at the World Trade Center there's been a bomb I'm like oh, okay you know it was like okay he's like and then it rings off like he loses we lose connection and so then he calls right back again he's like ab ab I'm in windows of the world there's been a bomb you need to call 911 and I'm like thinking, why is he getting me to call 911? And I'm, tr you know, like, I'm going to miss the bus. And right. how am I going to, you know, like, and so I just kind of wind up going, okay, okay, and calling 911, you know, yeah. and figuring, you know, we hung up. And I just, you, know, you just assume you'll be, I'll, you know, I'm going to call 911, I'll call him right back. The kids will be on the bus, you know, like everything will sort of sort itself out. So I'm calling 911 on the, you know, cordless phone. And um, I'm calling and or well, I'm calling New Jersey dispatch. And it turns out that he's called me one minute after the first plane hit the first building. So nobody knows anything yet. And so 
Uh, the New Jersey dispatch says, okay, ma'am, you know, and I'm thinking, they're thinking, I'm crazy. Um, okay, ma'am, we'll call NYPD and we'll call you back. And so I figure, okay, great. I'll get my daughter onto the bus. So I run her to the, the bus stop. Um, and I don't know how far the cordless is going to reach. Does it reach all the way to the bus stop or not? You know? yeah. Um, and so I put her on the bus and there's this crazy moment where she turns to me and she's like, Mama, who was on the phone? And I was like, oh, it's your dad. He said there's a bomb in New York. Okay, bye, sweetie. <laughs> like, what? Um, and so I get back just, you know, just as I come back, probably into range, the phone rings and it's it's New Jersey again. And they said, a plane has hit the building. We suggest you go turn on your TV. And so I'm thinking, oh, okay. So I'm thinking Cessna sure. has hit the building. So again, two year olds still on the hip. I go, I um, turn on the TV, <clears throat> flip through stations, and I see just, I, I've turned it on just in time to see the second plane hit the second building. And I think, oh, uh, bleep. <laughs> um, just like, you are screwed. You know, and all I can think of is that movie Towering Inferno from the yeah. 70s. Yeah, I remember. And I think, oh my God. This is not good. This is not good. <clears throat> and so that's kind of what and you starts haven't you there. haven't spoken to him, your husband again. Mm-mm. And so of course, you know, I've got the phone in my hand still, so I'm I'm dialing his number, and I just get voice stream. They have a like, you know, I am sorry, we cannot connect you to voice stream, and I'm just like on redial, 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 trying to call him back. Um, and I just keep getting the voice stream. And then at one point I call his mom and tell her, I get her voice message, tell her to call me back. She winds up calling me back literally as the first building is falling and I'm just screaming at her. Like it's, she probably has no idea what I'm talking about. It's like the building's falling, turn on your TV. You know, I'm like hysterical. So yeah, it was that kind of day. And then the whole rest of the day, it was really hard because there's all these guys coming home slowly, like they're all coming home from from Manhattan, you know, and they're telling stories like, oh, we got a, you know, we got a ferry across or we, you know, we managed to get uptown and, you know, we walked through the tunnel, like literally are they you, were walking through the are tunnel. Are you meeting these people or you're hearing them on the news? Um, some of them uh, have already kind of, you know, they know from calling home, whatever that, so... There's one guy who I remember specifically. He lived across the street, and I saw him walking. I, I sat on the, the porch most of the day, and I saw him walking um, on the opposite side of the street, and he crossed over. And so he w- he came over and said, yeah, I got a ferry, and it's just really hard getting out right now, and there's huge lineups at all the all the phone booths, so people aren't getting through. Like, don't worry, he'll turn up, Like, kind of like trying to reassure me. Do you think that the... The man you were talking to understood at that point what the enormity of the, oh yeah the I mean at the, it was like four p.m. at that point both buildings had fallen oh sure do you think that he felt like a lot of people were not going to come home I have no idea no idea uh, yeah I imagine he probably did he probably did I mean even I at that point was pretty pragmatic. You know, at first I really didn't know, you know, like I was just going by what my husband had said. He was at Windows of the World in the World Trade Center. I didn't know 
where that was. I kind of assumed it was at the top. I didn't know if it was in the first building or the second building that fell. It maybe it was in the middle of the you know the one of those buildings. I have no idea. So I didn't you know, and so I kept trying. Um, the New Jersey Dispatch, the guy that I'd spoken to that morning, he was calling me like every hour wow. just to check in. And and I kept saying to him, you got to find out for me, where's Windows in the World? Where? You got to tell me. I don't know. You know, was it the building? Which building fell? You know, like, and I'm, so I'm he was. i surprised to hear that he was calling you. Yeah, he was amazing. Officer Wyatt. I will never forget his name. He called me. And I remember he, he his final call was at like three o'clock that afternoon. He's like, I'm going off shift, but I really just wanted to make sure you were OK. And, you know, like, please stay in touch. And yeah, he was amazing. And yeah. Have you do you know what's happened to him? No, no, I yeah. don't. I don't. Um, yeah. I mean, eventually I found out from his company, you know, um, that. So what I found out from his company was uh his, you know, head of HR or whatever had called one of the guys that Aaron was with. Um, they had gotten through to him. So we knew from him that they had been shunted into this room that was known to be fireproof. And so that it was a, he was there at a conference. There was about 80 people in the conference and they all got put into this room um, thinking that they were waiting to be evacuated and that they were going to be safe there because it was a fireproof room. I don't think it was a smoke-proof room, so I don't know how great that would have been. Um, but I remember thinking, oh, if you're waiting to be evacuated, you didn't make it out, you know. Because, you know, you do the calculation. That building fell in 90 minutes, and he was on the 106th floor. So even if you, do, even if you did one floor a minute, you didn't make it out. And the fact that they were waiting to be evacuated... So I was always super pragmatic, even by 4, 4 p.m. that day. Like, I had already made that calculation by noon, you know. And how was your son? That was your two-year-old, right? What mm -hmm. was your son doing at that point? I had sent him uh, next door to stay with the other <laughs> the other nanny. Yeah. Because I just, you know, I mean, the TV was just on all day. People were wandering in and out of the house. <clears throat> it was just kind of chaos. And we were all sort of la kind of laughing, like, you know, neighbors coming along going, oh, you know, Aaron's the kind of guy, he'll get he'll get everybody out with duct tape. He's like MacGyver, you know, like saying things like that, like it'll be fine. And I'm thinking it this just ain't fine. It is just not going to go well for Aaron. Did, did people saying that when you think back on that, did that help you at all? You know, it gave us kind of uh, a way to kind of laugh and remember him. You know, to think about him just like, yeah, he's going to figure his way out of this. Like he was wily and smart and all of that. You know, like it was just sort of, I guess, looking back on it, it was almost a way of remembering him. Yeah. You know, it was like we were kind of grieving and hoping, but grieving. <laughs> and people who did not live, I, I'm from New York and I lived in L.A. when 9-11 happened, but I got calls from my family and I followed the news and anyone from that era knows that there were signs all over New York posted by people who missed loved ones hoping that they would come back. Mm -hmm. And it was sort of this inexplicable, I mean, logical and yet inexplicable reaction, right? Yeah. I mean, I think there were a lot of people who were like my mother-in-law where they felt that somehow they'd made it out. They, they had amnesia, wound up in a hospital, didn't know who they were. We're going to kind of, you know, waken up someday and, 
you know, go, oh, I'm supposed to be at home. <laughs> and I was just like, eh. And then, I mean, you know, that night, like, I had a neighbor who was a doctor, and he went down to Manhattan and checked all the hospitals and wow. came home and said, yeah, there's not one person that, you know, really has been checked in. Wow. Uh, you know, and there were picture. I mean, we were watching it on TV. You know, there's all the doctors just, like, kind of, like, twiddling their thumbs standing outside the, the hospital doors and there yeah i think they were all expecting there to be just this massive influx of patients but of course there wasn't <laughs> it's a really tough fact i hadn't considered <clears throat> that that mm -hmm. image is uh really difficult mm -hmm. how did your kids come to understand what happened when when did your children really understand and when do you think you really in your gut understood um well like i said i understood pretty pretty quick. Um, my daughter came home from school that day and she came running up and she's like, mama, mama, mama. She said, um, bad men flew, flew planes into the buildings in New York and the buildings fell down. And I was like, I know, I know, sweetie. And then she kept sort of like, she didn't say it, but she was like, where's daddy? You know, and there's all these people in our house and, you know, and she's like, where's daddy? And I just kept saying, I'm not sure, sweetie. I don't know. And then that night I gave my son a bath and just sat there like sobbing. And he actually stood up in the bath and gave me this big hug that felt very like not my son. Like it was like my husband giving me a hug. It was very, I don't know, it was very weird. Um, but then the next morning, um, <clears throat> I don't know if I can get through this part, but the next morning they came and jumped on my bed and I told them, yeah. I don't think I can talk more. You'll have to read that in the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a grief when it's personal and when loss is personal is very contrasted against the public grief, mm -hmm. the 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 big memorials, and when mm -hmm. something is sort of in the ether for a whole country or a whole world but you have personal experience with it. Mm -hmm. it. It must be a very strange sensation. It is. It's really weird. Um, I don't think I understood for quite a long time the, the bigger impact, you know, cause I was so in my own little world, you know, I mean, I knew, I knew that the rest of the world was grieving and there were certain times where it was impacting me, you know, like my, my family was all in Canada, but they couldn't cross the border. So I couldn't, they couldn't get to me until Thursday. That, they weren't allowed to, for anyone who doesn't remember. The border was closed, yeah. um, certainly on the 11th and on the 12th. And then they got through on the 13th. Um, so things like that, where I was like, oh, you know, and, and knowing that the pl planes had been grounded, like they had to drive from Toronto to New Jersey. Um, just things like that. Um, on that first Friday, we went into Manhattan. It was the first sort of missing person report that I had to file. Um, and just walking into that, it was uh, uh, the, oh my God, the armory in New York. It was just this massive building and it was jammed full of people. And I remember just thinking, oh my God, there's just so many of us. Like there are so many um, just sort of realizing kind of the scale that was sort of the first time. 
Um, and then driving home from that and like every overpass on the highway had people and flags and all the cars were draped in flags and, and then driving up my street, um, all my neighbors had tied red, white, and blue ribbons around all the trees going up the street and just stuff like that, where I was just like, oh man. And I was kind of freaked out about it because I was Canadian. And so this was just like, this was over the top Americana as far as I was concerned. <laughs> I was just like, what's <laughs> which, happening right now? Which is a whole nother subject. <laughs> There's a lot of that. Uh-huh. And I was just like, it was freaking me out in such a big way like that I just didn't know well there's a there's an element of it that makes me wonder how can those public uh displays and I'm not saying they're not genuine but Mm -hmm. take any grief away how can they even bridge the distance yeah well that was the weird thing because at the same time they were very comforting you know Mm -hmm. like I was just like I was just breathless driving up my street and just thinking oh my god these neighbors were amazing you know, like at my memorial, at the memorial that I had, it was like a month later. And I specifically had the memorial on Canadian Thanksgiving. Um, A, because I knew a lot of people, Canadians would be able to make it because they'd have the weekend off or the Monday. It was a Monday. Um, But B, just because it was a really meaningful, it was always our more meaningful holiday. Just we always spent it together. Um, So uh, my neighbors, after the memorial service, had made an entire turkey dinner and all the people that came back to my house, you know, we had turkey and all the fixings. Hmm. Like, it was unbelievable. They'd all and, you know, just I mean, the neighbors were unbelievable in a way that I can't even begin to describe, you know, looking up and out my window and there'd be somebody in my yard weeding or Hmm. mowing my lawn or. There was a sheet stuck to my cabinet um, that was a sign-up sheet for, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And I'd get calls every day like, hey, how many people have you got today? And I'd be like, yep, lunch for 10, you know, because <laughs> my house was full of people for a month. Was that also, was that mostly family? Uh, family, friends, yeah. yeah. And it never occurred to me. I mean, it was really actually, uh, like, overwhelming. It just never occurred to me that I could ask anybody to leave, you know, like Mm -hmm. it was sort of really nice on one hand. But I mean, people were billeted up and down the street. All the neighbors were taking people in and like, come and stay with us. And it was unbelievable. Were you the only person in your immediate neighborhood that had experienced the direct loss? Yeah. Although it turned out that um, there was another uh, little girl that was in my daughter's school. She was in the other sixth grade or first grade class. And so her mother actually only lived two blocks away. So that family was close by, but I didn't know them ahead of time. <laughs> I knew them. I found them after. And they, you know, that family was dealing with the loss on such a totally different, in such a different way. She was grieving in such a different way. What, what way? Um, you know, I was very kind of, uh, I was actually quite regimented. I had a book about how to, how to deal with grieving in children and one of the things they said was try to maintain the routines as much as you can. So I was like, you know, I let my daughter have like two weeks off of school and, you know, and she kept complaining of stomach aches and all this. And finally, I just was like, no, it's time. You're going to go back to school now. And now I'm on the fence, actually, looking back, whether that was a good idea or not. This other mother just was like, yeah, whenever the kids didn't want to go to school, they didn't have to go to school. She bought them each a puppy. 
you know, and then she'd call me up saying, yeah, you know, my daughter is like cartwheeling all over the house. She's been doing it for three hours. I don't know what to do. <laughs> like, I don't know what to tell you, honey. You know, it was just like. That's a really funny image. Mm-hmm. I mean, and she, her kids just sort of spun out of control, whereas Olivia kind of held it all together, maybe to, you know, to a fault. And I think, you know, if you were to ask her now, she was like, she doesn't remember any of her childhood because she was just denied, denied, denied. And she kept saying, I just want to be a happy person. Wow. You know, I don't want to be a sad person anymore, mama. You know, let's Do just you be feel happy. like you were a sad person? Oh, God, yeah. Well, yeah. She didn't like to see me crying and, you know. Because in your description, I, I'm feeling like I haven't read your book yet, but I feel like I'm hearing a resourceful a pragmatic, continuously pragmatic mm-hmm. person who is trying to do everything the way it should be done, including not throwing people out, even <laughs> if they're getting to her. And so I'm not getting the image of your, oh. and that's not, that's well, not a fault of yours. It's no. me, you know, trying to understand. Well, I think what, what happens is you, you wind up in this place of total numbness. You're doing everything on automatic. So whatever your kind of personality I was before is sort of what takes over. You know, it's just like, I am going to keep up with routines. I am going to keep, you know, keep things moving. And I also had a very regimented nanny. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I'd been working full time and obviously my husband worked full time, but I had just been laid off like a couple months before all of this happened. And I was actually supposed to have um, a third interview for my dream job in New York on September the 12th. Mm. My dream job was uh, working... Um, kind of managing the children's website for MoMA, the oh. art gallery. And it was just going to be this amazing job. Anyway, obviously that didn't happen. But I still had the nanny. Um, and I sort of kept her on because as it turned out, I went, I did go back to work where I had been laid off. They hired me back in like November of tw- uh, 2001. So I had this nanny who herself was a widow, had been widowed at 40 with five kids. This woman had no pity for me at all. (laughs) She was awesome. (laughs) So she was just like, you know, she was kind of helping me kind of maintain the order a little bit. Um, How long did you keep her? Well, uh, I kept her right until we moved to Seattle, actually. And why did you move to Seattle? Um, It was starting to dawn dawn on me that um, if I stayed in New Jersey, that Uh, My kids were going to continue to be those kids, Mm -hmm. and I just didn't want them to live under that shadow. I didn't want to live under that shadow. And, you know, New York and New Jersey, you know, that whole area is still, I could probably make a case for the fact that it's still quite traumatized by what happened. Um, And I just didn't feel like I could maintain, maintain that. Um, it was also very much a kind of a bedroom community you know, it was lots of pe- people who, you know, both parents worked and, you know, did these long commutes into the city. Everybody had nannies and I just didn't fit in anymore. You know, I just wasn't part of a family unit in the same way. So and how many years went by between, like, how long did you stay after? Four years. Four years mm-hmm. and then you left. Mm-hmm. So then your memoir covers mostly those four years. Yeah. Yeah. My memoir ends with my move to Seattle because that sort of like mm-hmm. I've made it. I'm starting over. And that was a, another part of why I moved. It's just I needed to start over. You know, I need to start a whole new chapter. So what do you think about grief now? What do you 
what do you feel? Is it possible to know that your life has been edged with grief, but not be in grief? Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, you know, in so many ways, grief is um, is is sort of this amazing opportunity, which sounds weird. Um, but it's an opportunity because it's like uh, it's a moment that cracks you wide open. And, you know, it's sort of like, I think, to a certain degree, divorce can be this way, you know, near death experiences can be this way. It's just, uh, it's moments in your life when you kind of realize like, oh, my God, life is really short. And um, I think also with the, you know, certainly with the grief, I was sort of really obsessed about where my husband went (laughs) and figured he had to be somewhere. And that, I think what wound up happening is that you sort of lose your fear of death, right? Because I, th- I kept thinking, well, if I die, I'll be with him, hmm. you know, as irrational or rational as that is, um, depending on your viewpoint, I guess. But uh, so all of a sudden, things that had been holding me back, you know, like I can't possibly write a book I've never written before. Oh, like, who cares? I just need to write this thing. Like, you know, like, uh, I, don't, I don't even care what happens to it. I'm just going to write it. You know, it's for my kids. Like, you know, just things that would have held me back in the past just didn't matter anymore. It was just like, oh, my God, that's so mm-hmm. stupid. Yeah, of course, I'm going to live, you know. And so I became like, you know, I became the proverbial yes person. Like, oh, you want to go, you know, everything from an invitation to dinner to writing a book to, you know, like trying a a new recipe to like trying a new exercise class to, you know, doing some woo woo crazy thing that just like, I don't know. So suddenly anything was possible. Yeah. And that was really freeing to me. You know, that was huge. Like I kept thinking, Oh my God, I could, I could take the kids. We could move to Paris, you know, like why not? anything was possible and why not? Because life was short. Everything ended with, but I may as well do it because life is short. I might not have this chance again. Yeah. You know, and I think to a certain degree, I'm still of that, of that nature, you know, like that really is sort of my mantra still. So is, what would you say is your identity now? Uh, Or what are your identities? (laughs) Gosh, I don't know. Um, Yeah, I guess writer is one. Um, uh, I sort of, uh, I had a breakup about a year ago that was hard, you know, just emotionally hard, another loss Mm -hmm. kind of thing. And, um, so weirdly writing had been my, my salve in my first loss, but painting turned into my salve in this one. So I sort of took up painting, which has been really fun. Um, I, uh, you know, I'm now more of an empty nester. So parenting is sort of like, drifting a lot drifting away more although I think I pretty much identified as a mom prior Mm -hmm. to that um so yeah I'm in you know I'm in that kind of weird place that sort of empty nester place where you're trying to figure out who you are again do you feel like the widow part of your story has receded a little bit although it comes back every year because I still go and I speak at camp widow which Mm -hmm. is a conference for widowed people um so I guess in that sense, I, you know, I still wear the mantle a little bit, um, but certainly not kind of on my sleeve as I once had. You know, it's much more sort of buttoned up and 
Do you ever get tired of it? Um, yeah, you know, I guess so. I, uh, I think what happens is other people see me as the widow, but I don't see myself (laughs) as the widow. So, um, so I don't really get tired of it in that way because I'm not, it's just not how I, I, I'm seeing myself. I think it's just, it's just become part of who I am. You know, it's just like, yeah, people are going to ask me about it, but it really doesn't bother me to talk about. And, you know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty whizzy wig as you'd say in the web world what you see is what you get <laughs> that's funny i've never heard that before um thank you for teaching me that sure so how are your kids how 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 do they understand what is what has been their life uh it's been interesting because only you know it was only when they got to be about 20 and now my son's just 20 uh that they actually read the book um and my daughter read it. My son listened to it because I have it on Audible, which is where I used to work. Um, so I think it was interesting to watch them go through that process of sort of um, kind of coming to terms, realizing the enormity of what it, what had happened and where, you know, I think it explained a lot about themselves to themselves. Um and just sort of understanding kind of what I'd gone through in terms of trying to raise them um, was very enlightening. And uh, my daughter sort of really got into neurology, brain neurology, and sort of really got interested in understanding uh, trauma in children and the effects of trauma in children. So she knows now a lot about that. And I think that comes purely from from her experience because she was so lost and now she's you know she's in kind of um applying to to medical schools and stuff so it's kind of cool yeah yeah and then my son I think he's still he's just more recently read it so I think he's still sort of like working through and um I've just put him in touch it's kind of really amazing uh I've just put him in touch with uh my husband's boss in New York Um, because my son is now in business school and he's kind of looking for internships and this man was just so lovely after my husband died um, and just so helpful to us and he loved my 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 husband and so it's just been really cool to see him kind of take my son under his wing a little Mm -hmm. bit and really try to help him and so that's been kind of a full circle moment too so it'll be cool when my son actually gets to meet him yeah yeah that's really a nice element mm-hmm. I, that's very unusual mm-hmm. yeah so there's really some amazing kind of full circle moments that have happened too you know do you um do you think about your husband still always yeah 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 he comes up <laughs> you know a song or if I'm having a hard moment just like damn it why aren't you here you know just stuff yeah. like you know just like wanting them to sound you know a soundboard yeah kind of is that Mm -hmm. so what is something that you would want people to know that they might not know about widowhood or about 9-11 or any of that (laughs) any of that what would surprise people do you think that they they don't know about that you do know oh gosh that's a tough question there's so many aspects of that uh well I think I've already talked about the idea that you know widowhood as awful as it is it doesn't stay awful um 
and that, you know, you've got two choices, right? With anything that happens in your life, any kind of hardship, any kind of suffering, any kind of, you've got two choices. You can take a negative route or you can take a positive route. And the negative route tends to be really, really hard work. The positive route, if you can get there, um, is, you know, it's a little more like um, paddling the boat with the current instead of against it. So, um, so I have learned that, that um, sometimes you just, you wind up doing things or that you wouldn't necessarily think you would ever do but it's because it feels like you're going with the current rather than against it. And so I think if you can kind of let go, maybe even let go of the paddles a little bit, you know, it's just sort of like let, let, let things happen and unfold as they're supposed to. I don't know, whatever that is. It just makes it a lot easier than fighting, fighting, fighting all the time. And the positive route, you know, seeing the, seeing the positive aspects and the opportunities and the experience is what really what helped me. Um, and I was great, you know, I didn't, I didn't set out to do that. I didn't consciously go, Oh, I'm going to be a pot. You know, I did sort of consciously say, I don't want to be a bitter, bitter widow. Mm-hmm. You know, like I didn't want to be one of those grumpy old, you know, complaining <laughs> about life for the rest of life. You know, like I just <laughs> felt like that would be a real waste of time. So I guess in a way I sort of did consciously say to myself, we're going to, we're going to get through this and we're just going to do the best we can, you know, and it's going to be messy. And it was messy. Um, Do you mean with parenting? Yeah, I think that's mostly what I think, but just grieving, you know, whether it was parenting or just getting through my own grief and understanding it and, you know, um, just, you know, you'll hear in the widow world, probably other worlds too, like, you have to go through it. You can't go around it. You always have to go through it. So learning to go through those hard moments and and having having the faith that they're going to end, like they won't be forever, like you can wake up tomorrow and it will be gone, is really nice. I think I got myself through that by just saying every tear that I, I shed was a tear that I never had to shed again. Like mm. somehow that got me through a little bit. Like I was just like, oh, good, done, done with that one. Okay, bring on, like, let's get through the rest of them so I can be done with them all together, you know. There's that sense that I was going through and not going around. Have you seen people who have not chosen that route in your circle? Well, because I go to um, most of the widows I meet are at Camp Widow, which is this really positive place. And most people, if they wind up at Camp Widow, are just by nature of winding up there, the kind of people who are the positive outlookers, mm-hmm. I think. Um, so, you know, probably that one widow whose whose child was cartwheeling all over the place, um, maybe her, but, you know, she was just a messy widow too. You know, she didn't maybe follow all the rules, but I think she probably got through she wound up moving away pretty soon after so I didn't really fall I didn't stay in touch with her um but I just yeah I can't really think of too many somehow you get through and you move on you know you're never the same again for better or worse you know there's definitely there's definitely times where I worry that you know it's just like oh my god I've become this horrible sad person I'm like that all the time (laughs) but uh people assure me I'm not um 
but I do worry sometimes that, you know, you know, when you can't really see yourself clearly, you know, it's just like, gosh, is this, is this a cloud that, you know, am I like the Eeyore that, you know, I've got this little cloud that follows me everywhere I go. I don't know, mm-hmm. you know, but I do worry about that. Um, so I try, you know, I try to just keep on the positive side of things as I, as best as I can, you know, I write a book or I do a painting or I make a meal for my kid. <laughs> Whatever it is, you know, I just try to stay, stay above it. Yeah. You've definitely had a lot more work in front of you than many of us have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess I did. Yeah. Again, you know, it's just you get so inside your own little world that I'm I forget that um, I guess sometimes my experience surprises people, you know, it just becomes your normal after a while. That's mm-hmm. just how life is. <laughs> Isn't it like this for everybody? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I would love uh, listeners to be able to find you. So what is, where are some links or um, where can you send us? Um, probably the easiest is just to go to my website, which is abigailcarter.com. Okay. Um, and you have a book there. You have another book there. Mm-hmm. You have your art there. Mm-hmm. You have a blog. I do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I want to thank you very much for for making the time to talk with me and for uh, sharing so much of yourself. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to And Then Everything Changed. For more information on this episode, photos, community discussion, and other episodes, please visit atecpodcast.com. You can also find And Then Everything Changed on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like this podcast, please remember to subscribe, rate, and review. Thanks for listening.